0: is in its original format uh that's even creepier Uh, pj harvey (laughs) did a great job with that that's and i can't even think of the original as all that creepy anymore despite it being associated with the scream franchise i enjoy peaky blinders too much and now it's just uh, you know it's oh crap i can't remember that guy now it's just kelly and murphy's theme song So that's where I land on that. Anyway, uh, that playing over the trailer, man. Great stuff. All right. This is the Radlich and Broadcasting Network Movie Review Club. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Winfrey, and this is our review of Guillermo del Toro's love letter to the gothic horror genre, Crimson Peak. Uh, Our not so fearless leader, uh Mark Radlich, is not here this week. He's not a big fan of horror movies, doesn't like being scared, and I can't blame him. It's not for everybody. So, preventing me from babbling to myself for an hour because really, who needs that uh host of the cheap seats long you know long standing member here on the ride Le broadcasting Network, Jason Teasley is here with us. Jason, welcome to the show how you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing good, robert how you doing?
0: oh, well, pretty good uh better than Loki apparently
1: <laughs> yeah loki loki is uh not in the best of spirits as uh we we will soon find out. <laughs>
0: Oh man, getting I almost don't want to talk too much about, you know, specific spoilers even though I mean that's one of the things we do here. So to anyone out there if you haven't seen this movie already, be forewarned there will be spoilers. And I'm just going to I'm going to let you all know in advance. This is not a story twist driven horror story like a lot of others try to be. It's a relatively straightforward narrative but there are some mystery elements to it and if you want to go in completely blind don't listen to this watch them come back afterwards this is the beauty of on demand audio we're here whenever so if you want to wait until if you don't want anything spoiled just be aware this is your warning spoilers we'll be ahead if you want to be going completely blind all right jason up uh, man You and I talked a little bit about this, and before I actually get into my plot synopsis that I do and then get into specifics, I have to mention this right off the bat, man. Guillermo del Toro knows how to – kind he's one of these directors who knows how to scare you in a way that a lot of contemporary horror directors don't. He doesn't go for cheap jump scares. He doesn't go for you know the really obvious stuff. He's a very thoughtful filmmaker with a very clear vision, and in many instances, that just happens to scare the crap out of you and i again, this is not the scariest movie I've ever seen, but it's a very effective horror movie and I'm just before we get into the specifics, I'm curious as to your overall impressions of the movie.
1: Oh well, I went in um I went in thinking that it was gonna be totally different style movie than what it was. Like you said, we talked offline and uh, I, I agreed to do this show, you know, as soon as as soon as you said that you wanted to cover it, I was one of the, I'm pretty sure I'm one of the first people that messaged you and said, uh, I wanna be a part of this, uh, you know, horror movies are or in my wheelhouse. And I went in thinking that this was going to be more of a, um, kind of straightforward jump scare and stuff. But like I said, Del Toro doesn't really sell himself on that. He is more of the creepy, old style, suspenseful, gothic, which this is a prime example of gothic horror style that he is known for. And this movie, um... It's probably the one of the better horror movies of that gothic style that I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, and I'm really sad that this movie has not received – it should be fine financially. It actually had a very small budget, all things considered, especially given some of the name value of people involved. It still hasn't opened in quite a few overseas markets. Again, low financial hurdle to jump over. And I think it will be fine financially. Not great, but I think it will be okay. And it's... I, I just... I feel like trying to explain gothic horror to people who don't quite understand it, who think different. It, it's almost like trying to explain to a 13-year-old why Lou Fez is great if you're a professional wrestling fan. It's... I mean, it's just uh, almost a generational thing where they don't It's not explained to them properly, they don't quite know what they're getting into, and it's just, uh, and to anyone who understands it, who, and, and again, not the scariest movie I've ever seen, but a very effective horror movie, and we just kind of sadly live in a society that thinks the only thing that's scary is excessive amounts of gore or copious amounts of jump scares, and sorry, but no. Those aren't, uh, personally, those aren't scary. That's lazy. Anyone can make someone jump by yelling boo when they're not expecting it. That doesn't mean you're scared.
1: Well, I mean, this is more of a stylistic genre that has been lost over the decades of scary movies and horror movies and such. This is actually kind of a throwback to what horror movies used to be more suspenseful, more plotting, story-driven rather than hack and slash.
0: Yeah, and it's a real shame because, you know, I would rather, if you're trying to tell an effective story, you're better off giving me four people that I really care about than 30 that I don't and killing all 30 of them. It's not an effective tool. And it just Again, I find it to be, generally speaking, lazy. Because again, startling someone with a loud noise is easy. It's not hard. Not to say that jump scares aren't an effective tool. It's, you know, it's like cooking. You know, or painting. It's a tool. It's a spice. It's a color that you can use to enhance the overall product. But you don't want to sit there and eat raw sage. You want, you know hints of it throughout the rest of throughout the substance of your dinner. Just like a horror movie. You don't go there for jump scare after jump scare. That's lazy. It's boring and it's not effective. You want it as an additive to a good story. And fortunately, Guillermo del Toro knows how to mix jump scares inappropriately with his atmosphere. Now, the basic plot line of this and again I'm going to apologize in advance for spoiling this but you've all been duly warned so this is on you now uh we open meeting the main character Edith played by Mia Wasikowska, and I'm probably mispronouncing that I'm just not sure of her uh if she pronounces that you know the polish way or the what's the other major way that you pronounce something with it. There's Polish, there's Jer- there's a couple of different ways that it's pronounced, and I'm just going with straight English at this point in time, so I apologize if I'm butchering that. Uh, fans of Supernatural will be happy to see Bobby Singer with a beard, a full beard this time, playing her father. We meet Tom Hiddleston, better known as Loki, <laughs> playing Sir Thomas Sharp, who has come to America trying to get financial backing for his new clay mining operation his sister is there with him played by Jessica Chastain who you know it's odd that she steals every scene that she's in but it shouldn't be because she's an extraordinarily gifted actress uh Tom Hiddleston begins trying to woo Edith her father doesn't like it father winds up dead she marries Loki which just sounds odd to say it that (laughs) way but she marries Tom Hiddleston they returned they moved to his ancestral home in England which is falling apart sinking into the hill because apparently no one knew how to build on clay which just strikes me as an odd oversight in the construction of the house but it makes for some great uh slowly we begin to realize things are not right uh Edith has been able to see ghosts since she was a child infrequently this isn't you know i see dead people kid from the sixth sense so it's not a beaten over the head point of point of view but there's something wrong with the house she's seeing ghosts they're warning her there's it and it comes about that she is slowly being poisoned by uh Tom Hiddleston and Jessica Trastain. for uh, cuz she's now married Tom Hiddleston after all of her assets are transferred over they're going to finish killing her just for their money. They have done this quite a few times before. They're just want they running out of money. They want to keep their house going. Uh, it, they, it turns out that the two of them have a very uh, physical relationship for brother and sister. Eh, wink, wink, if you get my drift. <laughs> There's a minor uh, subplot of Edith's Kind of childhood friend, played by Charlie Hunnam, who... Guys, if you're out there and you want to cast Charlie Hunnam in something, that's fine. He's a good actor. Stop making him American. Quit asking him to play an American character. I swear, the first time that man is allowed to speak normally, he's going to hit it out of the park. Just let him do it. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with him using his normal British accent. Uh, He kind of comes to the conclusion that things are not right, that uh, Tom Hiddleston has been married before, is actually still married because they've not found any of the bodies of his previous wives. And he comes to rescue her. Things continue deteriorating. Again, Jessica Chastain is going crazy. She's disturbed already. Turns out she killed their mother. Is kind of the driving force behind what's going on. We get the predictable bloody showdown. Uh, people die, specifically the Sharps. Uh, Hunnam and Edith are rescued by people that uh, coming up to the house, and we all kind of fade out. It's you know, I, I, This is a very... I can tell you how the story goes, but the entire point of this is atmosphere, is visuals, is... It's so much more than the plot points. And uh, you and I talked a little bit about this, Jason, but this movie, you know, it, it's tried to, it could almost be construed as an insult to say a movie looks like a million bucks, given that, you know, you spend many millions. But this movie looks just wonderful. I, I mean, which is a hallmark of gothic horror to begin with. It's a very a very visually rich style and for a visual filmmaker like del Toro, that's just, you know, the happiest marriage possible because he gets to put all of his visual talents to use. And I mean, you're just sucked into this world in the, you know, from the very beginning and it looks just gorgeous. Even the rotting house is very, you know, there's a great attention to detail with it. It just looks great.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the visuals for this movie and, you know, like we talked, we talked off air about how much the movie actually costs to make. And when you told me the figure, I was blown away because I expected it to be at least double of what the movie actually costs, simply based on the visuals alone. um, The the red, the clay slash blood uh, mixture with the snow, was absolutely stunning, I mean it leaps off the screen, it puts you in this just really surreal atmosphere and just draws you in, doesn't let you go uh also the attention to detail for the time period that he set this movie in was really good i mean the the i guess he's he's famous for like period pieces and his attention to detail, I mean, if anybody's seen any of the Hellboy movies uh, can see what he does visually, especially with the Tooth Fairies Um, but he is just, this was a, like, pretty much a match made in heaven him doing a stylistic gothic film and just with the all-star cast that he was able to get what did you say, $55 million is what the budget was? Yeah,
0: the budget for this movie was $55 million dollars which okay, is, I mean, again, that's more money than I will ever see in my lifetime. But if you're talking about budgets for movies, that's actually quite small.
1: Yeah, and especially when you watch this movie. I mean, the house, the casting, the house, the visuals. I mean, he really stretched $55 million and turned out a much better product than people that spend triple that and who are just want to collect payday. And movies today, you can reflect that in a lot of movies today. That they'll just—it's especially we'll we'll throw out your favorite direct, uh, person in cinema, Michael Bay. I mean, you give him fifty-five million dollars to try to make a movie, and that might cover the first axe explosions that he wants to do.
0: Yeah, that's about it. I mean, the one I mentioned, and I think this bears repeating because last week you all heard Mark and I review Pan. That movie had a budget of at least. And there's some issue about exact numbers. At a bare minimum, that movie costs 150 million dollars. Uh, closer to 200, probably when you factor in, you know, reshoots and you know, marketing, which is not included in the budget. And uh, you know, again, the final total is usually different than the actual budget for shooting and production. This movie costs a third of that and looks three times better. And, I, I mean, again, I saw it, and I was like, man. Because I watched Pan, and I was like, what did they spend $150 million on? Because I know Hugh Jackman, God bless him, doesn't command that high a price tag. I watched <laughs> this for, you know, a fraction, and it looks just worlds better. I mean, honestly, and I don't say this, you know, lightly, but from a visual perspective from, you know, a costume design, a set design, art direction, there's got to be some Oscar consideration here because everything just looks so good.
1: Yeah, I mean, and like I said, I mean, him doing this was a match made in heaven. I mean, it's right up, it's in his wheelhouse to do a movie that is very dark, very gothic, very old school Horror, and with the cast that he was able to get um you know I just want to touch back on it uh the uh what Jessica Chastain her and, and Tom Hiddleston uh them on screen together was an eerily creepy wonderful thing um she just stole stealing scenes from Loki is uh, It's hard to do. I mean, anybody that's watched any of the Avenger movies, when they see Tommy Hilson on the the screen, I mean, he just commands your presence because he is just so good in the role and such a great actor. But she kind of overshadowed him because when she was on the screen, it was you knew that there was something really unnerving about her and just something not right. And she played that very creepy, very troubled. Individual and as as it goes on, as she starts that little descent into madness, that she comes across, you're like you're you're scared that this person might actually snap, and you're worried for everybody in the movie because of her just how creepy and well she played the role.
0: Yeah, still again, Tom Hiddleston is a wonderful character actor, and he's great at you know getting across what he needs to. And stealing scenes from that man is extraordinarily difficult, and yet she does it in the most understated way possible because she's a very subtle character. I mean, up until the point when she actually does snap and then then manages to be terrifying in a slightly... In, I mean, like a dressing gown type thing, shrieking and chasing after poor Edith with a knife. I mean look, I'm not a small, I'm a pretty big guy. You know, I'm six, one, I'm twenty. i uh, Again, I'm not huge, but I just, I remember th- watching her, you know, in the midst of her psychotic break thinking, yeah, I'd be running too. You know, that's,
1: <laughs>
0: that's a scary, th- and, and again, you know, there's nothing supernatural about her. She's just a crazy person with a knife. And really, when you think about it, that's pretty darn scary
1: especially the one scene that that just leapt out and really made you just see the the disturbed character she was playing is when uh they come back from the post office and they're in the kitchen and she slams that that bowl down well she they turn the stove off and she just appears and then like just this creepy just she just kind of floats through the room, like, effort, effortlessly. And she goes from this calm, like, concerned I was person.
0: cooking breakfast.
1: Yeah, and then all of a sudden, in Zero to Crazy, she slams down and just gets this really twisted, kind of eerie, yeah, there's something to be worried about, and you need to run. <laughs>
0: The fact that Edith didn't run just shocked me in that scene. Like, okay, if somebody does that, I'm at least taking three steps back.
1: I'm I'm out the door. I'm, I'm I don't care about no keys on the table. I've got I don't care what's in the house. Road, I'm done with it, and I'm I'm just I'm out.
0: Uh, you know what? We I'll you know, I'll see you in the funny papers type things. Nope. You are, you know, 10 pounds of crazy in a five-pound sack.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, and like I said, it's it's hard to steal scenes from Loki, and she done it so effortlessly, and it's like, especially when she's playing the piano in the parlor, and they're just having this nice conversation, and then you start picking up on just like the tone of a voice, and just her body language, and you're like, wow. And then you go back to, um, we'll, we'll talk about, I want to talk about the uh, the one major horrific graphic death.
0: Um, There's when a couple. It shows,
1: but... no, you know, it's the one with the sink.
0: <laughs> I, I knew which one you were talking about, and I, it actually but, brings up something I want to talk about with Del Toro in a minute, but go ahead and make your point.
1: But, yeah, just seen that and, well when it does the reveal and because it builds up to that and when you you have they give you kind of a red herring and but then when they do the reveal you're like yeah I could totally see that and yeah and the fact that the brutality of it is just so insane and the the facial features the body language and everything you, it kind of—it's disturbing how well she the the role was played, how well the the scene was shot, the death scene was shot, and how brutal, in a tasteful way, not in a graphic torture porn way, but it was a tastefully horrific scene.
0: Yeah, this is one of the things about Del Toro and anyone who's seen Pan's Labyrinth understands the man's ability to put horrible violence and he doesn't glamorize it he doesn't it's not, again, it's not glamorized it's not over the top anytime I watch him do something violent in a movie, and again, be it again, be it poor Jim Beaver, because that that poor guy just cannot live through anything and as a fan of Supernatural, it was just a little bit heartbreaking to watch Bobby get his face crushed in but uh, it's treated very realistically and it's a it's this really weird shock because there's not a lot of violence in this movie and he and del toro manages to he doesn't shy away from it you know there's no cut there's no quick cut scene after the first time his head gets slammed into that sink it takes three, four times, and we're sitting there watching uncomfortably every one of them. There's a giant gash in his forehead, there's a piece of his skull that's protruding, and this sounds, and again, bear in mind, this sounds awful as I say it, because it's a horribly violent thing. But it's not this graphic, over-the-top, again, for want of a better phrase, it's not gory, it's not... It's shocking, and it's very violent, but it's not what you might think of with traditional, you know, kind of horror violence. It's this oddly kind of beautiful thing that is a stark contrast to everything around it. And again, if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, uh, first of all, shame on you. Just anyone out there, watch that movie. It's uh, You have to be okay reading subtitles because it's in Spanish, but it's just glorious. And he does the same thing there where he is able to juxtapose horrific violence with visual beauty. And it's a really impressive hallmark of him as a director. And it makes it that much more disturbing because you've seen up to the point before her father is murdered, it's a little unsettling. And we've seen a couple of ghosts, which are very creepy. But it's it's also played out in equal parts like kind of a Jane Austen novel, which is very deliberate. And I have to forgive everyone because I hate Jane Austen. Just I've read at least two of her books, and it just made me want to vomit. But I have a Y chromosome, so I suppose that's to be expected. Yeah. But it it again it plays very much like that. You know, there's a lot of you know attention to the clothes detail. There's some beautiful shots, and then. Pretty much out of nowhere here's this, you know, violence and it's a huge shock to your system because you're not expecting it and that makes it so much more effective than some of the later Saw movies where all they do is okay, we're gonna throw more graphic violence at you and hope it's shocking and at that point you're just numb to it and want it all to go away because why or why are you making this movie? And here, you know, Del Toro is able to take one death, one murder, and make it deeply uncomfortable and deeply effective. You know, you are watching that, you feel it. And I I can't give any higher praise than I was viscerally affected by that whole thing. And, and kudos to him for, you know, taking violence, not glamorizing it and somehow managing to make it shocking within the context of his story, even though, you know, again, I have seen, I'm a bit of a gorehound. I've seen stuff. The way that he dies is not the most graphic death I've ever seen in in cinema. It's still one of the most effective. And that's, again, I can't praise any more than that.
1: Yeah, I mean it's, and it's weird because um, I'm going to say the first two acts of this movie, you're not, you're just, it's it's building this scene to the actual horror that you're going to be treated to, and yes, I said treated to because of the way it was shot, the the tone of everything, but I'm gonna, the first two acts of this movie, you're learning backstory, you're learning everything and then you see the transition to and you get little clues of what's actually going on and then the third act of the movie you're just it's no holds barred everybody's on the crazy train and you just bought a ticket.
0: Yeah and again when I talk about the style of gothic of gothic horror There haven't been very many recently. It's not a style that plays very well, which deeply saddens me. The other one that came out recently that I think, and I say recently, it's been a couple of years. Uh, But The Woman in Black was a gothic style horror story. And they're not what we tend to expect. I mean, again, we live in a world where, you know, of Hellraiser and Saw and Hostel and... You know, these uh, these wildly successful uh, franchises that the only thing they can do, think to do, it seems, is just try to outgore the next one, which it, it, it just completely defeats the purpose. The reason you're worried in, in this movie as it goes on is you know the characters and you care about the characters. And, you know, even poor Charlie Hunnam with his American accent, when he gets stabbed, you care. And that's what you react to.
1: Okay, and, I'm going to ask you this. Could could right. this movie function without him? Um, I, didn't, I didn't really see. Uh, I thought that there was going to be a, a nice twist with him or something. But his character really served no purpose as... Set as oh yeah, this is the guy that everybody wants her to be with. Her her father wants her to be with, but eh, we're just he just wants he just needs a payday, so we're going to put him in this movie. I I think the movie functions just as well without him, and the reveal that he does, you could have done with the private investigator that her father hired, because that's what causes his demise. Is because he he doesn't feel. He sees something off about this this brother and sister, and their crazy idea to come to America after three failed attempts elsewhere. And we see that uh, why those attempts failed, or so they thought failed, but it's it's he doesn't really serve a purpose other than being there to basically to find out and show that. She, yeah, she has a childhood friend who grew up to be a doctor that her father wants to be. Because even in his death, he doesn't really serve a purpose. Because when he gets stabbed the first time, he's going to bleed out. There's no saving his life. I, know I was this. a little I was bit surprised,
0: surprised that they decided to go that road of, no, he's not actually dead. I mean, look, there are plenty of ways you can be stabbed and survive. Plenty of them. I mean, again, you're an EMT. I'm sure you're more aware of this than I am. However, a penetrating wound angling upwards under the armpit is probably not one of them, especially when we're talking three inches, three to four inches of penetration. There's a number of major blood vessels there, not to mention your lungs.
1: Well, there's, it's it's a you also have a major pressure point there. And going up, especially at the angle he went at and everything, it's just, <laughs> you're going to bleed out rather quickly because you got your, uh, a lot of pressure points there. You got a lot of, uh, arteries and stuff going to out to your arms. And once you get to that, yeah, that, and it's close enough to the heart, uh, I always, When I was growing up, uh, if you got hurt, my uncle would always say it's far enough away from your heart. It won't kill you under your armpit is pretty damn close to your heart and it will kill you.
0: I mean, the second stab, you know, kind of low on the abdomen off to the side. okay that's that's survivable. That first one, though, I mean. uh, You know, again, much as I like crazily enough, I actually like happy endings in horror movies that one's going to kill him, you know, and you should, the other thing about that is, you know, in that instance, you don't pull out the knife. You, you, there are certain wounds where, you know what, we're just going to leave that alone for right now so that the blood does not go braying six feet away from you, which is what happens when you hit a major artery. That sprays. Yeah, you know, again, there are certain wounds when okay. You know what? We're going to leave the the foreign object in the body for right now, and we'll let you know. We'll deal with it under better circumstances than, oh crap! There's still two crazy people here who want to kill me.
1: Yeah, you have some major artists, and any time that you have a object impacted in your body, you you do not take it out. Uh, I mean, if anything, we learned that in The Martian as you guys reviewed. <laughs> the the blood will cauterise around it to prevent any more blood escaping. It will clot. It will it will help heal itself. Once you take that out it has free access to ooze. It takes a long time to clot and you can bleed out. <laughs> it is it is known to <laughs> bleed out.
0: Yeah, let the blood coagulate around minor next to the, you know, major blood vessels instead of yanking it out and completely opening up the fire hose. The you near know, the fire hose. Uh, as to whether or not the movie functions without him, uh, it's weird because in many ways, yes, it certainly could. In a few ways, no, because he serves a couple of impor- important plot points. He is the viewer's, he is the way the viewer learns a few things, specifically from the uh, private investigator. He is also the impetus for. Uh, he is the messenger of. Yeah, these things. When he arrives in England, he is the one who lets Edith know. No, things are really screwed up here. Whereas without him, yeah, you know, I think the final act takes a different turn if he is a non-factor. I'm not saying that it might not be, you know, again, could it, you know, could removing his character maybe make it better? I'm not sure. I think there are certainly times when he is superfluous, especially kind of in the second act when, you know, we're watching him do some detective work. It's just like, wait a minute, okay, that's really not all that necessary. At the same time, in the third act, he's very important for kickstarting the final insanity, and I'm not sure how that plays out without him. Now, again, you can certainly find other ways to do it. I, I just, I he makes an important. He again, he's an impetus. He's a plot point at that particular juncture. But I, I'm not. I just sure. think you could
1: get the private investigator to do every accomplish everything in the third act that he accomplished, <laughs> which because you already had the information. And he could have just been trying to search her out and to give her the information rather than spending time to actually have him go to England with his horrible American act. See, that's another thing I me mean, talks about offline. Why did they just not make him English? What? I
0: know. Let <laughs> the man, was- if you've never heard Charlie Hunnam speak outside of acting, you're in for a shock because it's almost a world of difference. I mean, the only comparable analog I can think of as far as, you know, being portrayed consistently as American and then you hear, if you are not aware that they're British of some variety, uh, Andrew Lincoln, who plays Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead. Yes, that blew my mind. The first time you hear him, you're like, wait a minute. Really? You're British?
1: But I, I think that, um, like I said, I, the I see his his purpose in the third act, but it's it's like they kind of shoehorned into the movie. Like he needed a pay he needed something to do after Sons of Anarchy, and this is, hey, I'm going to do this movie, write me a part, and he he just to me it felt shoehorned, and you could have accomplished everything he done with the just reworked it a little bit and used the private investigator that her father found that already had the information rather than – and that's another thing that bothered me is the private investigator already had the information. Why did he have to go reacquire the information to give it to Charlie Hunnam to take to England?
0: He he had different stuff when he talked with Charlie Hunnam. He had – I think it was just he had the marriage license from – uh, Tom Hiddleston's previous wife at the time, who he was technically still married to, because they hadn't officially declared her dead. By the time he got to talking with Charlie Hunnam, he had access to more documents. And again, there were some newspaper articles, a few more things that he actually had access to at that point. It could have been written better. That's most certainly true. And there were a few scenes, in the again, in the middle of that movie where I feel he is absolutely shoehorned in. Uh, it's one of the few weaknesses. Uh, at the last, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, and this is another thing I have to praise Del Toro for. There are things in this movie that I know were done with computers. I know there was again, most of the ghosts are probably CGI'd. The fact that I have a hard time differentiating elements of what is done digitally with what is done practically that's the way it's supposed to be, you know. Again, the no, I, I almost laugh at the notion of good CGI by and large, because if you can tell an image is computer generated, it has fundamentally failed to convince you that it's real. Uh, Del Toro has a great grasp of mixing physical props, you know, stuff that he has actually built with stuff that he does digitally. And as a viewer, it just allows for total immersion in the the viewing experience. And I, I really wish more people would take their cues from that because again, there's plenty of movies where it's just blatantly obvious. All right, I mean Jurassic World, for example. I harped on this when I reviewed it. I thought they leaned way too much on digital side of it because I honestly I would be shocked if they actually made a single dinosaur and there are certainly times when okay I get it you know you can't build a fully functioning animatronic raptor that can run alongside Chris Pratt while Chris Pratt's on a motorcycle okay but I mean honestly any of the stuff in the pens you know they're all done digitally there's nothing actually there and it took me out of the movie With this one, again, I know that, you know, floating ghosts are by and large CGI'd. At the same time, there's a couple of scenes where they're just in shadow walking that I feel like, you know, that's probably a person. You get a dancer with good control over their body who can move in that really, really creepy style. And again, that's a person back there done completely in shadow making these horrible motions that are designed to set your skin crawling. And I again, I just have to praise Del Toro for blending the digital with the physical in such a way that as a viewer I can't tell them apart and so don't care. It's just a viewing experience.
1: And anybody that has listened to any of your shows or knows you personally knows the quickest thing quickest way to take you out of a movie is bad CGI. Quickest way in the world. But, like you said, uh, the CGI was was flawless. I mean, of course, you know, no, there's no such thing as real ghosts and that can be captured on film. Everybody knows that. You know, ghost hunters prove that they can't catch them on film. They just hear them talk. Um, but the the aspect of how well it was done... Like I said, I never even thought of the whole. Well, yeah, that could be a dancer in the shadows. I just took it as you know. Yeah, they just had somebody just walk by in the that with like a cloak or something on, and they just kind of outlined where they wanted to frame it and just kind of guided them. But yeah, I never thought of you know a dancer being that because they have so much control over their body and everything. That's a good good notation that you made and
0: well I always have to think about that now because of the first Silent Hill movie because almost all of the again Pyramid Head is digital but all of the other creepy looking demons are people in costume who just move that way to creep you out so now I always think about okay could this actually be a person or is this all digital and If I can't tell the difference, again, you're doing something right.
1: Well, and this is something I'm I'm going to pose this question to you. Once you get the reveal when she's down in the basement, does it not seem like, I I kind of pointed this out to Shannon as we was watching it. I thought that there was no such thing as the the red clay was actually just a cover-up for all the blood and stuff that has been spilled and you know, and it was just basically kind of like the telltale heart thing that it's coming back to haunt them. And they were just trying to get rid of where all the blood had seeped out into the ground. It wasn't actually clay. It was just where they have taken so many lives and covered it up. It was actually just blood re resurfacing to call attention. And that red on white um, foreground and everything was done superbly. Uh, it looked really, really visually nice. Uh, it brought it sucked you in because especially during the the quote unquote final battle. And yeah, you do get a couple of jump scares in this movie, but they're well placed and they're not like you said they're a complimentary of the entire movie, rather than the main focus. Uh, I it scared me once when she's uh it's at the end where she comes through the machine at her, and yeah, it kind of got me uh, because it was a well placed, well timed jump scare, rather than oh I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. I know something's going to happen. It was more like the fog rolled in. You had the red ground mixed with the white snow there. And you've got this machine running. And then she comes out from, like, in between some of the machine parts and tries to stab her. And it is just insane. You, It's visually appealing. It's has that nice little, you know, scare factor. And it's well acted by both participants in the scene.
0: Yeah, again, Jessica Chastain does a great job of being crazy. And this is one of those things that in the horror genre in general gets talked about by people who like it. It's a lot more difficult to be an effective horror movie protagonist than you might think. I mean, there's a lot of people who have tried and failed. There's, I mean, you again, the final girl uh, trope from slasher movies, there's only two, eh, three, I'll give you three, that are really good at what they do. And when you consider, in some cases, the quality of actress that has tried to do that role, the volume of slasher movies, it's not easy. It's a really difficult thing to get right. And... It's a little bit different in a gothic-style movie because you're not running from a monster with a knife for most of the movie who's just piling up the body count. In many ways, it's even more important that you be sympathetic because if we don't care about you know, the lone protagonist in The Sea of Crazy, then we don't care about any of it. Because, again, her peril is what makes the tension throughout this movie. And uh, Mia Wasikowska does... A phenomenal job of being sympathetic, and uh, of not being helpless. This is a proactive character. She yeah, is curious. Um, she investigates. Good.
1: Yes, and she she isn't the. She kind of notices something that's not right, and realizes that she's being poisoned. When she wakes up in the middle of the night and you know she's coughing up blood and she kind of deduces well the only thing i'm doing is drinking tea well maybe and then you start seeing her piece together stuff and then you know you get the big reveal down in the cellar of the house and she she's very proactive she doesn't just oh i'm helpless damsel in distress she's she can hold her own and one of the things that really pained me is toward the end of the movie when she gets pushed off the balcony. Oh, and
0: I cringed. <laughs> I thought gets, she was dead. I'm not going to lie. I,
1: <laughs> well, see, what, what I expected was that she was going to have a broken back and be paralyzed. And, and then that was going to be the whole she can't do nothing. And then you're going to see the the quote unquote the, the savior turn and uh, the brother going and you know because he did fall in love with her and then you see the 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 truth <laughs> of what brotherly love meant and like I said uh, when I want to bring this up I didn't enjoy the twist that it gave because I felt it was too obvious and knowing Del Toro the way that I've seen in previous movies, I think people that's familiar with his work, it was an actual twist because they know his stylistic style of movies. He doesn't make things so obvious, so blatantly in your face. But like Shannon pointed out in the time period, that was very common that, you know, you you kind of had ancestral relationships and brotherly love, and how they went about um, describing it and piecing everything together that ties back to the mother was done flawlessly, very well written, very well acted, and just great all the way around. It added to an aspect of the movie that you don't see, it added depth to characters. And in mo- like you pointed out earlier, we're in our day and age, uh, a horror movie is a slasher, gore porn thing rather than an actual intellectual, suspenseful, uh, suck you in, make you actually care about this very small cast of characters. It's more or less about the body count.
0: Yeah, and which is really sad because if you put a again, you, you if you were to ask me my favorite horror movies of the last you know decade, give or take, I'm gonna tell you a few very specific ones that don't fall into that category. I'm again the original Saw, which I maintain is just a, a very well-made movie. The first two Paranormal Activities, which are the antithesis of Body Count. I mean, there's one death in the first paranormal activity. One. Uh, the Australian uh, another- movie, The Babadook, which I'm not going to lie, man. I, I didn't see that movie in theaters. I watched that movie at my computer in the middle of the day, and it freaked me out. That's uh, That's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen.
1: I've watched about the first thirty minutes of it in the middle of the day and turned it off because i was getting creeped out, and I'm very, very difficult to creep out.
0: <laughs> it's, uh, it's again, you think of the, you know, the scariest, most terrifying movies ever made, and I don't mean that lightly. You get, stu- you know, Alien, The Exorcist, The Shining. I throw that one up there. Uh, that's how highly I feel about it. And I'm and again, after seeing this one, I'm going to include uh Crimson Peak among my better horror movies of the last, you know, 10 years because it's so well made. It's creepy, it's atmospheric, you care about the characters. I mean, Loki, again, Tom Hiddleston's character is not a good guy. But he's conflicted about this as time goes on, and you get that. It comes across. He does a great job of making uh, about a halfway villain character feel sympathetic to the point where, when he decides, okay, I'm done. You know, I actually did fall in love with this girl. I'm. You know, we're not killing her. We've got my machine working. We can stop all this. You sympathize with him. Then he gets stabbed in the face, and you're like, wait a minute. I mean, it's it actually kind of like, whoa. I mean, because the other two stab wounds, his death scene, he gets stabbed a couple of times in, like, the shoulders and upper chest, and they're not too deep, and they're very survivable wounds. And he tries talking Jessica Chastain down, and he's getting somewhere, and then she snaps and stabs him under the left eye. And I'm like, I mean, again, Del Toro does not shy away from violence because – he proceeds to then pull the knife out of his face. I mean, it, it's, ugh. but in the well, best way is, possible. This
1: is what this is where my uh, my career kicked in. Um, out of all the wounds that he sustained, he would not bleed out and die that fast. But
0: no, but no, he was the, nothing major was hit there. But
1: <laughs> Jax Taylor could hit a major artery artery and. Live to slowly sh- sashay out of the the house and down the road because I mean tremendous blood loss. Your blood pressure is going to drop. You're going to drop within five ten minutes. You're not going to make it. Um, you get stabbed in the face. It's there's nothing there's nothing major that's in your face that's going to kill you. Uh, especially I mean unless it's a direct stab to your brain in some sort but I'm pretty sure that with the knife that she had and the location under his eye you're not gonna you're not gonna hit the brain. And it's not gonna kill you.
0: So... It's unlikely to hit the brain stem. It's you're still going in three to four inches but there's a lot of sinus space back there, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, the worst thing that you're going to do. I mean, you're you're going to be in discomfort. <laughs> uh, that's the only thing that you're you're not going to be able to. You're, it's not going to kill you. I mean, there was not a tremendous amount of blood loss. Uh, you would probably black out from the pain. Your body. You might go into shock. That's about the worst thing that's going to do. And once you go into shock. Uh, a compromised state you might die in a couple of hours. Yeah, you're not going to die immediately and but as soon as somebody gets stabbed under the arm, your blood blood pressure is going to drop, your body's going to start compensating, you're going to go into shock, you're going to die within 5 minutes.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, again it was one of those and I mean again, getting stabbed in the face is certainly not something I ever want to try and survive. But I imagine, you know, it's above the soft palate unless, again, unless you actually hit the brain, and even then very specific parts of the brain, You're, it's most certainly survivable. That being said, it was a pretty violent <laughs> stab wound, and I actually got a kick out of Loki, you know, shedding the one bloody tear right before he kicked it. Uh, again, Del Toro has a phenomenal attention to detail.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's the subtleties that make his movies so great. It's not the it's not the up in your face, very look at me aspects. It's the subtleties that attention to detail that makes his movies phenomenal, and has built him to be one of the better. Horror slash sci-fi directors of this time because he puts in so much effort into his movies.
0: Yeah, one of the thing one of the great things about any Guillermo del Toro movie is you understand as you're watching it, you know this is his vision, and that's certainly again that's extraordinarily commendable. You know everything that is on that screen. You know everything that you're watching he wanted to be there he has cared enough about to put detail into to put thought into and it all comes together into you know again great movies i mean he's one he's got not a perfect filmography uh again the first hellboy has pacing issues and mimic is not great Uh, It's not bad for what it is, but I'd certainly not call it a great movie. But the second Hellboy is very, very good. Uh, Again, Pan's Labyrinth, one of the better movies of the, uh, again, from 2000 to 2010, one of the best. Uh, Not just foreign language, just best movies of that entire decade.
1: We're about to run out of time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we can go over a little bit.
1: Well, I mean, I was just giving you the heads up. Um, it's uh, wow, I did not know that he was part of the strain.
0: Yeah, he uh, he and Chuck Hogan wrote uh, the three novels. He's directed a couple of the episodes. I know he did the pilot and uh, uh, continues to produce it.
1: Now, this, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, this is the movie. I'm. Uh, did he, yeah. Uh, it's the movie that Del Toro did, and uh, I I liked it. A lot of people threw off on it and said that, you know, it was one of his worst films ever. But I I like it simply not because of the the fear factor or anything. I liked it because of the the direction that he took it. Uh, he was I don't think he direct actually directed no. Troy Nixby directed it, but he was one of the writers for it. And that was Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Um, did you ever get to see it?
0: I have seen it, and I would agree with you about that. I, one of the other things I like about Del Toro is he is more than happy to attach his name to projects that he is not, again, he may not necessarily direct, but if his name can lend some more exposure to them, uh, I, he's mo- he's quite happy to do so. Uh Again, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was a very good one. Uh, in the same kind of style of, you know, Haunted House or gothic horror, uh, The Orphanage, which he, I believe, just produced and helped distribute, is a very good kind of horror movie in, in that sense. Uh, he's, again, it, he's not, it, it's not his, you know, his stuff is not impeccable. It's not beyond some legitimate criticisms. But, the flaws are few and far between. I mean, he's one of the guys in the world right now of film who I will go see a movie because he's attached to it in some way. And I can't say yeah. that about too many other guys. You know, it, it's like him and Christopher Nolan. They, these are the people I trust with my money. That, okay, I'm going to spend my money, I'm going to get my money's worth out of your movie.
1: I, I I can agree with you. Um but the even when Del Toro takes on a, a role of just um I wanna bring I wanna fix everything that Michael Bay destroyed and make a movie with Rock'em Sockem robots and make it completely awesome. And I uh, I mean I know Mark's a huge fan of Pacific Rim. I've seen it uh, I watched Pacific Rim like three times. And I think that that's why uh, we got Charlie Adam in this movie is due to his uh, Pacific Rim uh, connection. I think he might have – Del Toro might have had him on a, a three-track uh, or some. I don't know.
0: Well, Del Toro, when he finds actors that he likes, works with them frequently. He I mean, Ron Perlman's been in almost everything he's done.
1: That would have been nice to see Ron Perlman show up in this.
0: You know, I, I feel like he could have been uh, the character that Jim Beaver uh, played, you know, the father who dies. Uh, he could have very easily done a role like that. Or or he could
1: have been just even if Ron Perlman was just uh, a member of the committee sitting around the table, just like just un a ca- a, 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 a uncredited cameo when they take the camera around the room. Just have Ron Perlman just sitting there. I mean, I think that would have been great.
0: Well, Ron Perlman is pretty much always great. This is true.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, he headbutted the devil for crying out loud.
1: Yeah, but the devil.
0: That movie's awful, by the way. But... God. Uh, hey, look, I, the movie in question, hold... for those of you who don't know, is Season of the Witch. It stars Nicolas Cage and Ron Perlman, and there's a devil causing the Black Plague, and Ron Perlman headbutts it.
1: And Nicolas Cage seems surprised. He has a surprised look. <laughs> uh,
0: you know, I feel bad for Nicolas Cage having to make all the movies that he does because of his tax issues, but... Oh, man. Yeah, if you if you ever want to watch a amusingly... I don't want to say bad, but the, an amusingly bad movie is probably the correct terminology. Season of the... You could... If, you, if that's what you're in the mood for, you can do a lot worse than Season of the Witch. I'll just say it like that. If you want a good movie about ru- similar material, find Black Death. And poor Sean Bean. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: he dies in everything.
0: He didn't <laughs> die in The Martian, and it threw me off.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that, you know, you you was expecting it to happen just because it's Sean Bean. <laughs>
0: it yeah it was uh all right the last thing i want to say then we're going to get final thoughts and close this up and this is another thing that goes to the direction of del toro he has a great way of framing his shots especially stuff dealing with spirits because they're very rarely in the foreground and in many cases they're not even centered in the frame. They're moving around the outskirts. There's one scene where Edith tries to open a door and it's pulled shut and you just b- get a glimpse of the spirit in question. And it's just, it keeps you off balance as a viewer because you're not quite sure where to focus. And again, just the, that's the last thing I wanted to praise about this. Uh, again, small budget, had a weak opening uh it was kind of contending with a couple of other uh, a lot of the horror audience might have been pulled to the nostalgic goofiness of Jack Black and goosebumps, and haven't seen it. I make no comment but I have no problem with family friendly kind of pseudo horror and i'm actually might even wind up seeing that one or if you're a if you're a fan of movies you're probably more you were probably more attracted to Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks reuniting for Bridge of Spies. So it opened a little bit soft. It did 20-some-odd million, I believe, winning weekend. Uh, again, movies have to pretty much double their budget to be successful, but this movie released worldwide with Del Toro's name being a well-made movie, I imagine it's going to be profitable. It's not going to be a home run or anything, but I'm not worried about it losing money. I mean, even if I'm a studio executive and I have signed over, you know, millions of dollars for this, I'm not worried about this one at this point. I think it's going to be okay when you consider, you know, worldwide grosses. But, uh, again, if you haven't seen it to anyone out there and you want to, uh, if you're on the fence, go see it. This is a good, again, know what you're getting into with the gothic style of horror. It's atmospheric. It's character-driven. More so than body count and graphic violence. So again, be aware of what you're getting into, but it's very well made. It's very enjoyable. And again, if if you're on the fence, I'd say go see it uh, without reservation. You know, you'll you should enjoy it. It's a, again, I we've spent the last hour praising it uh, with very few criticisms. Uh, I, I again, I have very few negative things that I could say about this. The second act maybe drags a little but that's a very very minor gripe and most of it serves to further the character development so it's not even a real complaint i have no regrets about seeing this movie i have no complaints about it uh just a real joy to watch and del toro makes beautiful movies uh, visually and in many cases narratively so go see it if you were considering you know something else and you're not going to be offended by an r-rated horror movie Go see it. It's a very good movie. All right, Jason, final thoughts, and then we'll go ahead and do plugs.
1: Uh, final thought on my end. Uh, there's one more thing I want to praise that he does, and it's and I noticed it in this movie, is the pinhole exiting scene. Uh, you don't see that anymore, how the scene just kind of closes down to a small pinhole and fades to black, and a scene change. It, it's something, like we said, it's minute. But it adds to the the overall feel of the movie, and it gives it that gothic style and the old school horror filming with that being said like you like you stated uh if you're on the fence and you just want a just it's about a two hour just interesting just popcorn horror movie that isn't about uh the body count. Yeah, definitely go see this movie. Uh, it's well acted. The visuals are stunning. Um, I can't say n- enough good stuff about it. Only down thing I have is the whole Charlie Hunnam playing a American rather, and when the movie's shot in England, uh, you could. That's the only real gripe I have, and it's not even that big of a gripe. So that's that's all I have in closing.
0: Again, to anyone – whoever is casting Charlie Hunnam next, cast him as a Brit and watch the difference between when he has to fight his accent and when he can just work with it, and you will be shocked. But that's it. That's all we've got to do here. Uh, all right, so, Jason, what do you got to plug?
1: Uh, the only thing I had to plug is um, last night, me and Jesse Starcher uh, – continued our weekly episodic fun-filled NFL rants on From the Cheap Seats right here on the Ledger Broadcasting Network. As well as you can catch me and Jesse um, kind of joining in uh, over on Screaming Boy Productions with Ronnie uh, and talking horror movies. Talking uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's always a fun time when, when I get to sit down and talk to Jesse and Ronnie. We uh, covered slasher movies and uh, our kind of favorite slasher movies for the Halloween season. Um, if like I said, upcoming, you can join us every Tuesday night, nine, between nine thirty and ten thirty, depending on my work schedule right here on the Rattler's broadcasting network for, from the cheap seats, a lighthearted look at the NFL <laughs> news and reviews. And tr- usually I have a cold adult beverage while I'm doing the show. So it always adds to the fun and, Lots of rabbit trails, me and Jesse, go down.
0: Yeah, speaking briefly of uh, Screaming Boy, I did a guest spot. I uh, don't know if it's the latest one that went up or the one before that, talking about vampire movies. But you can check that one out. That was a pretty fun time. We got to riff on Dracula 3000. I got to explain my knowledge of uh Canadian television series, which was amusing. Uh, All right, coming up, as far as my plugs, I'll be very brief. I plan on returning to uh, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, getting it back, dusting it off this coming Friday. I've got a weird idea that I think I'm going to go with for my return. Uh, Inspired in part by this, in part by another low-budget horror movie that my brother said I should watch called uh, Dark Was the Night. Uh, I've got an idea, and I think I'm going to run with it for my return. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it here, but it should be interesting. Uh, This Saturday, I will have live coverage of UFC Fight Night 76, live from Dublin, also known as the Irish Curse, because here today, just before we went live, the main event fell through. Son of a... Uh, I I kid you not. main event was always Dustin Poirier and Joe Duffy was a solid main event. It's a relevant, lightweight fight. Guys trying to make their way up in the division. It's not gangbusters, but it's a fight-pass, fight-night card overseas. Adjust your expectations. We had a co-main event that might have been for a title shot. Uh, Stepe Miocic and Ben Rothwell. I have faith in Stepe not being a heavyweight who gasses out after two minutes, because he's proven that. Then Stipe gets hurt. Well, today... Joseph Duffy was sparring without headgear and got knocked out. Guess what? Cussed. You can't fight. You stupid, stupid man. Now, our main event is Patty Houlihan and Louis Smolka at Flyweight. I love Flyweights, but come on. This card has been wrecked. But if you don't want to watch it and just want to follow along, I will have live coverage starting at. Oh, what is it? 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern this coming Saturday. So stop by, say hello. I'll need it. Some cards I need help with. This is probably one of them. Uh, also you will find me this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern standard time hosting the 411 ground and pound radio show here on the Ritalgen broadcasting network. Myself and Jeff Harris will be reviewing UFC fight night 76. Uh, any news that breaks between now and then we'll talk about. I've got to double check when the next card is that we'll be previewing. I think they're spacing them out over the holidays as the year winds down. So I'm going to double check it, but I will definitely be there this Sunday. So that's what I've got on my plate for the immediate future. We'll be back next week here. Uh, Mark and I are going to be back. We're going to have a uh, Mark refers to it as a split seven. Uh he is going to be reviewing Gem and the Holograms. I will be reviewing Gem and the Holograms as well without seeing it because why would I do that to myself? Incidentally, I will be watching and reviewing Paranormal Activity 5: The Ghost Dimension. Yeah. You see, I went from a good horror movie to what I'm assuming is going to be a bad horror movie. Oy. And <laughs> but again, I'd rather watch that than Gem in the hologram so take that for what it's worth anyway we'll be back next week Jason thanks for being here I appreciate it again it saves the viewers the listeners from having to listen to me prattle on for an hour so thank you very much for being here for this one
1: always a pleasure to join you on any show that you you're a part of uh, it's always a good time nice fun intellectual conversation so I, I appreciate you having
0: me on uh, I might change my nickname to the intellectual savior of podcasting <laughs> Which is hilarious because there's so many more intelligent people than I am to do podcasts. Yeah, yeah, you Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, no, no. I am your intellectual savior. <laughs> hey, Damian exactly. Sandow's not using the gimmick anymore. I figure someone should.
1: Uh, we, we could always do the genius gimmick with you. <laughs> I need the turban. Uh, just every time you just uh, video yourself throwing frisbees that no one and we just put that up and we just have like the pictures of you throwing frisbees out in random places for, um, the, uh, the photos for any, any podcast you have.
0: <laughs> oh, that'd be funny. All right. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Robert Winfrey for Jason Teasley reminding everyone out there to be well, be safe and behave. And I'm going to leave us with, uh, because Mark likes it again, hail the apocalypse. Uh, It started as a joke, and now it's apparently our official outro music. See you next week, everybody. Uh, Again, be well, be safe, and behave.